grab a Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verses 7 to 8. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1,028. And uh, while you're turning there, you should begin with a little story that I, I used to work as a welder at Southwestern, and we had a steady flow of of projects on campus, handrails, signs, pipeline, gates, you know, but, but twice a year, all of those projects came to a screeching halt, and all hands were on deck, the campus needed to be spruced up for the ultimate welcome. You might ask, why? Well, the trustees were coming, was always the answer. And their coming kind of changed the priorities on campus and compelled a bit of urgency. Perhaps you've worked in a restaurant before where customers come and go and the managers seem calm from day to day and then without warning, co-workers are scrambling, things are tense, lists are checked twice, three times over, repairs that weren't priority all of a sudden must be done now. Why? Why? The health inspector is coming. The health inspector's coming compels these necessary changes and inspires a bit more diligence. Or maybe you're a child, you know, old enough to stay home when your parents run an errand and they give you a few things to accomplish before they return. Wash the dishes, pick up the house, start some laundry. And you know they'll be gone a couple of hours... And so you take your time, you lay around, then mom calls, coming home earlier than expected, shoom, and you'd be cleaning the house so fast. We encounter lots of comings that change the way we live, think, prioritize, invest, and that often compel new levels of urgency. With the book of Revelation, we encounter a coming that's far greater. It's one that everyone must face. There is one coming that matters most in life, and that affects everything, and that will end history, and it will hold people accountable, and it will transform the world. And it is the coming of Jesus. Remember that verses 4 through 8... Stand as one unit. We've looked at it before. And it includes this rich greeting from God the Trinity. And he then celebrates the past redeeming work of Christ. In verse 5 he says, He freed us from our sins by His blood. And he then turns to the present reign of Christ. He made us a kingdom to Him be dominion forever. And now with verses 7 to 8, we're going to see how that dominion will manifest itself finally and fully. He points to the future coming of Christ, and it ought to impact everything for you. So just like before, we're going to encounter several allusions to the Old Testament. Uh, Daniel 7 and Zechariah 12 will be uh, the focus today. 
And, we, and I'll make a few comments about verse 8, but I'm going to save the Alpha and the Omega title uh, for a time later in Revelation when Jesus uses the same title for himself. So the bulk of our time is going to be spent on verse 7, but let's read it within its context, and we're going to start reading in verse 4 and go to verse 8. So hear the word of the Lord now. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. All right, we're going to break this apart in four, four different ways. So there's four, four parts here. Number one, let's look at Jesus coming. Jesus coming. Verse four, I mean, verse seven says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And there are a few layers to, to notice here. One layer is that the way the Lord revealed himself in the Old Testament was as the coming one. Okay? So Psalm 96, 13, which we read earlier, All the trees of the forest shall sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. Isaiah 35, verse 4, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance. He will come and save you. Over and over again in the Old Testament, we see that God is, reveals himself as the one who is coming, whether that's in judgment or in salvation. And so it's very fitting that verse 4 and verse 8 begin with this title of, uh, of, of the Lord himself, the one who is and who was and who is to come. But there's something you need to notice. Sandwiched between the title of him who is to come and him who is to come, right in the middle is Behold, Jesus is coming with the clouds. Why? Because we're supposed to see God's coming in Jesus' coming. Jesus' coming is God's coming because Jesus is God. Now, to that, John adds another layer. He describes Jesus' coming with the words from Daniel 7. And we looked at Daniel 2 a while, a while back when we were looking at verse 3 of Revelation. But in Daniel 2, we saw this great image, right? And it was made up of four parts, gold and silver and bronze, and the bottom being of iron and, and a mixture of iron and clay. 
And, and those four parts of this image represented four rebel kingdoms that eventually get shattered by this stone that's cut uh, by no human hand. They get shattered and, and it becomes a mountain that fills the entire earth. And that is pointing to Jesus' kingdom that will prevail all over all rebel kingdoms and eventually fill the earth. Well, Daniel 7 actually picks up the same theme, except this time he uses four beasts, okay? So you get like a lion and a bear and uh, you get um, a, a leopard and then you get this fourth, this fourth beast with iron teeth and tin horns. It's terrifying, dreadful, and exceedingly strong. As the vision continues, though, Daniel also sees the ancient of days, the Lord himself, and the Lord reveals himself as this great warrior king. He is enthroned on his war chariot in Daniel 7, and, and he there's these thousands upon thousands of angelic hosts who are serving him and he is sovereign and he sits down to judge these rebel kingdoms and then Daniel sees this in verses 13 and 14 he says behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man that's the reference that John is using in Revelation 1 7 behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed okay Just as Adam was supposed to have dominion over the beasts, Daniel 7 is pointing us to a new and better son of man whose dominion is forever. The rest of the chapter interprets Daniel's vision. The angel identifies these Four great beasts, it says, as four kings who shall rise out of the earth, the last one being the worst, and it's going to cause a long season of persecution for God's people. But in the end, when God sits in judgment and establishes the Son of Man's throne, it says, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Now, by applying this passage to Jesus... John is identifying Jesus as Daniel's son of man. Jesus is seated with the Ancient of Days. Jesus is the one who will replace all rebel kingdoms with his own kingdom. Jesus will have dominion forever, and all peoples and nations and languages will serve Jesus. A question rises, though, when? When exactly is this coming of Jesus? And it's a good question. Because in Daniel 7, when he comes with the clouds, he's presented to the Ancient of Days. It's this enthronement scene. Okay, so some Christians have said that, this, that Jesus' coming in verse 7 of Revelation 1 is a heavenly event versus 
a coming to earth. Okay, however, Daniel 7 goes on in verses 19 to 27, and it reveals an end-time situation where the saints of God enjoy victory in the exalted Son of Man's earthly kingdom. And according to Revelation 19 and 20, that earthly kingdom will manifest itself in the earthly defeat of the four beastly kingdoms. And that kingdom will transpire with the coming or the return of Jesus. So this heavenly enthronement in in the first part of Daniel 7 will eventually manifest itself in an earthly defeat of the four beastly kingdoms. Also, the fact that every eye witnesses Jesus' coming in the next part of verse 7 seems to exclude a strictly heavenly coming. Also, in Revelation 14, 14, John describes one like a son of man appearing with a cloud, and there it's clearly speaking of Jesus Jesus returning to initiate the final harvest for judgment. Also, Daniel 7.13 is used by Jesus in Matthew 24 to describe events surrounding His second coming, events that are earthly, that are public, that are visible, and have universal effects. And so I take verse 7 to describe the second coming of, of Jesus. Now, that shouldn't dismiss the fact that God has already established Jesus' throne, nor should we forget that Jesus' kingdom has already begun. We saw in verse 6, he made us a kingdom. It's just a question of emphasis here, and I think the emphasis falls on Jesus' return in verse 7. Jesus' heavenly reign will manifest itself on the earth. He will appear in glory to end his people's sufferings. He will come to destroy the rebel kingdoms. He will destroy our persecutors. He will remove their dominion, as Daniel 7 says, and he will replace their kingdoms with his own kingdom, and all peoples will serve Jesus. Next, we see every eye beholding. Every eye beholding. It says, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Now, you won't find the exact phrase, every eye, used in the Old Testament, but the theme is very prevalent in Isaiah over and over again. Isaiah, for, for example, Isaiah 40, verse 5, Then the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Isaiah 52, 8, For, every, for eye to eye they shall see the return of of Yahweh to Zion. Isaiah, Isaiah 66, 18. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall see my glory. And so Jesus is coming, will cause all these Old Testament hopes to, to materialize. In, in Jesus' coming, every eye will witness the glory of God's salvation and the glory of God's judgment. But notice how he includes a subgroup within the every eye. He says, even those who pierced him. Now, who's he talking about? Well, we remember this. This is John's revelation. If you go back to John's gospel, to chapter 19, verses 31 to 37, we learn that only one Roman soldier pierced Jesus' side. But here, John says, those who pierced him. 
in the plural. So who are the piercers? Well, I think one clue comes in Zechariah 12.10, which is the Old Testament context John alludes to here. Uh, It's also the prophecy that John says gets fulfilled in John 19.37, okay, when the soldier pierces Jesus' side. And we'll see how these all fit together in a minute. But God says in this prophecy, they will look on me whom they have pierced. And in Zechariah 12.10, the referent is the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They're the ones that pierce God. So we have sinful Israel who is committing a sinful act against Yahweh. And I think John 19 fits the prophecy quite well because the Roman soldiers, even though the Roman soldiers are piercing Jesus, they are acting at the instigation of the Jews. So we've got the Roman soldier who's acting on behalf of Rome, and we have them acting at the instigation of the Jews... And then the immediate context in verse 7 of Revelation 1 identifies the piercers with all the tribes of the earth. So who are the piercers then? Well, they are those people in every age who are hostile to the Lord and His Christ. Throughout Revelation, those who belong to the beast's kingdom are known for shedding the blood of God's people. And it seems consistent that the piercers who shed Jesus' blood refers to all who participate in the works that characterize the beast's kingdom. They kill Christ and they kill Christ's people. Even those who pierced him. It's a collective referent for all who oppose Christ in every age. And I'm grateful to my uh, advisor, Paul Hoskins, for helping me see that. So, while John refers to both the redeemed and the rebellious community witnessing Jesus' return, that is, every eye, the enemies of Jesus seem to be focused in this latter subgroup. Even they will see him. And it says, when they do, all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. That's the third part of verse 7. All tribes mourning. So just like we observe with the piercers, John does the same with the mourners. He broadens the referent beyond just sinful Israel to include all the tribes of the earth. And in the Old Testament, that's a, very, that's a, that's a common universal referent. Sometimes it appears in a context of blessing, like the Abrahamic covenant where God blesses all the tribes of the earth. Sometimes it appears in context... Uh, of judgment, like with those uh, in Zechariah 14 who fail to worship God's king. So the question is, what's in view here? Because if it's blessing that's in view, then the nature of the mourning, I know the ESV translates it wailing, that's not what every translation has. If, the, if it's blessing, then the nature of the mourning would be repentance and godly sorrow. If it's judgment, then the nature of the mourning is going to be terror, great dread, regret. And there's a growing number of, of folks 
under, who understand the mourning to be that of repentance. Okay, all the tribes of the earth represent the repentant nations who join themselves to the Lord in the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And what's compelling about this view is, that, is the fact that Zechariah 12, 10 through 14 anticipates God's Spirit moving the people to this heartfelt contrition over the pierced one, over Jesus. And by extending the reference beyond Israel, though, John is envisioning a, a time associated with Jesus' coming when all the peoples of the earth would join true Israel in repentance in godly sorrow and mourning over their sins and coming to Christ. And it's pretty compelling. Uh, Richard Balcom explains that view most thoroughly uh, in his book, The Climax of Prophecy, if you're interested in more details there. And everybody else kind of follows him. But uh, several factors actually lead me to favor the other view, that all the tribes of the earth represent the rebellious community who will mourn in dread at Jesus' return in judgment. One factor is that verse 7 pictures Jesus' second coming, and when expounded elsewhere in Revelation, the second coming enacts an immediate ingathering of the Lamb's people and an immediate judgment on the rebellious community with no further chance for repentance. We've also seen that God's everlasting kingdom would supplant all rebel kingdoms with the coming of Jesus. So viewing the mourning as deep regret and dread seems consistent with Jesus' kingdom finally undoing their evil empires and leaving them exposed to his scrutiny and wrath. We get the pictures of this in uh, Revelation chapter 6 when they're crying out for the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb in in Revelation 18 when when he hurls Babylon into the sea and now everybody's stuff is coming down. There's just one key objection to viewing the morning negatively, and it's that Zechariah's prophecy clearly envisions the morning as something positive. If you go back and read Zechariah 12, 10 through 14, it's something positive. It's the result of God renewing their spirit. So how can I say that it's a morning with dread? Well, sometimes the end time moment forces the apostles to use the Old Testament in an inverted sense. Okay, you can also call it a reversed appropriation. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. Some both, both, I hope, are pretty familiar to you. But one of the best is 1 Corinthians 15.55. This is where Paul quotes from Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. And in Hosea 13, this is the one where, where it says, O death, where is your sting? If you go back and read Hosea 13, Hosea is calling out to death and the grave like a guard dog. And telling him to sick, like sick him. Like he is, he is inviting death and Sheol to come and destroy Israel because they deserve it for their sins. But what happens when Paul quotes it in 1 Corinthians 15 55? It's no longer an invitation. 
for death, it is a taunt. It is a taunt against death. When Paul says, oh, death, where is your sting? He's saying, bring it on. You ain't got nothing against the Christian. So what changed? Well, the end time moment changed. Jesus' final victory over death inverts the invitation into a taunt against death. It's not that Paul's contradicting God's initial word of judgment. Rather, God's judgment has fallen on Jesus in our place. And so there's no sting left in death. And so he's saying, come on. It ain't got nothing on the believer who's in Christ, right? So you see the inverted sense? In the end time moment, kind of, uh, Ben mentioned one a while back from Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. Micah 5, 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. You who are too little to be among the clans. However, when Matthew cites the prophet's word in the birth narrative of Jesus... He does so in an inverted manner. Listen to it. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. You're by no means least. What changed? This end time moment. The Messiah was there. The Savior of the world was there. He had come to this little insignificant town and he was there and it changed everything. You are not no means least anymore. Get it? Is this making sense to you? All right, I think something similar is going on here in Revelation 1-7, but it's also connected to the way John has already used Zechariah 12-10 in his gospel. So let me put it together like this. I tried to draw it for you on the screen. All right, you see the words, on that day. That's referring to Zechariah's prophecy. On that day is all the last days, events of the last days. And these, these last days have two episodes. Episode one is Jesus' is coming in humility. Episode two is Jesus' is coming in, in glory. But... Let me put it together like this. John does see a time when God pours out His Spirit on sinful Israel and the sinful nations and He causes their repentance. Jesus started that age when He was historically pierced on the cross and the blood and water flowed from His sign, signifying that the day of cleansing for your sins by the Holy Spirit had come. It had started. So when Jew and Gentile alike who receive God's Spirit, when they look upon the pierced one rightly with eyes of faith, and they mourn and they are broken over their sins, God saves them and makes them His covenant people. And so in that sense, John includes the positive sense of the mourning that's expected in Zechariah 12, 10, and 14. It's part of this entire age that stretches from His first coming to His second coming. It's now when people are supposed to look upon the pierced one. However, 
the time in which Israel and the nations have opportunity to repent ends at Jesus' second coming. At the return of Jesus, the period for the rebellious community to repent has ended. All who remain from Israel and the nations who did not find repentance will face judgment. And these new circumstances force John to invert the type of mourning that Jesus' second coming will cause among the rebellious. I'll say it a little differently. In John 19.37, there's no need for an inverted use. John reflects on Zechariah 12 with respect to Jesus' first coming. God's presence in Jesus was revealed in his humble state. God became a man to suffer a cross for enemies. At the second coming, though, God's presence in Jesus will be revealed through his glorious state. God as man will conquer and judge all his remaining enemies, and that makes all the difference here. So in sum, Jesus' coming will not, be, will not just be universal in scope. Every eye will see him. It will also be awful in its effect as all tribes wail on account of him. Everyone opposed to Jesus will mourn with great dread. The terrible day of destroying his enemies will have come and they will find no escape. All right, lastly, we see the amen resounding here. The amen resounding. He ends with, with uh, even so, amen. The amen signals a strong affirmation. You, you could also tra- translate it, let it be so. In the New Testament, you'll often find it at the end of a doxology, like Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and back to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And this, the idea was that as God's words, remember this is a letter, Revelation is a letter that's being circulated among all the seven churches, and the idea is that when they're, when they're reading this to the body, the body is then re, uh, responding with, Amen, even so, Amen. John has already led the church to affirm Jesus' past redeeming work. And Jesus' present reign. And now the church must also affirm what Jesus' future coming will complete. So together, all the churches must affirm God's coming to judge will soon reach full expression in Jesus' kingship on earth. In this way, you could say that Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 anticipates the main theme of the entire book of Revelation. God's heavenly kingdom will come on earth in the personal arrival of Jesus. It's this that we affirm. And it's this that we obediently await. All right. That's four parts of verse 7. Let's talk now about Jesus' coming and how it should impact us. Okay, what does his future coming mean for the present? Well, for starters... I want to exhort everybody in here to look upon the pierced one now by faith. Believer and unbeliever alike, look upon the pierced one by faith now, and the pierced one being Jesus. I mentioned before that John quotes from Zechariah 12.10 in his gospel. The soldier pierces Jesus' side. The blood and water flow. John 19.37 then says, These things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. They will look on him 
whom they have pierced. And John says that the reason he wrote these things was so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name. But when you set John's gospel beside Revelation 1-7, you start seeing a broader narrative that the time to look upon Jesus with mourning and godly sorrow and faith will eventually end. Jesus will return to close the present age and replace all rebel kingdoms with His own. And at that time, His enemies will mourn with dread. They will wail at the terror of the wrath of the Lamb. Are you an enemy of Jesus? Have you rejected His word to do your own thing? Have you hardened yourself against his, his claim on your life? The answer is look to Jesus now then. See in his wounds that he died for you. He bled to cleanse you from your sins. If you look upon Jesus now with faith God will pour out His Spirit upon you and cleanse you from your sin and grant you eternal life. Don't wait to look upon the pierced one. Look on Jesus now by faith or you will look on Him later with dread. Maybe you're among the disciples that have chosen to follow Jesus. And you're wrestling with your own sin and doubts. The exhortation is the same for you. Look upon Jesus now with faith. Look upon Jesus now like Thomas did when he came to Jesus with his doubts. But when he saw the wounds in Jesus' side and what those wounds meant, he says, my Lord and my God. That's how we look. With faith. Also, join the church in confessing Jesus' return. Across the ages, Christ's true church has always confessed that Jesus will come again. Take the Apostles' Creed written 300 years after Jesus' birth. Just after affirming Christ's death and resurrection, it says that He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And it is crucial for us not to forget this. It is crucial for us to preach the death and the resurrection of Christ, but not to stop there. Also to include the coming of Christ, the return of Christ. And how that return would consummate the ages and raise the dead and bring the final judgment Our Lord even instituted a supper that we will enjoy together in a few minutes. And when we eat this bread and drink this cup, it says that we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again. This is a regular sign every week for you to remember that He's coming again. So do you eat and drink with expectation? When you talk to others about the Lord, how much is Jesus' return included? When you pray, are you hoping with the apostles, Maranatha, right? Come, Lord Jesus. 
Father, bring your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. When you eat together with friends and family and share in laughter, are those moments whetting your appetite for what we will be doing for eternity together, feasting and laughing over the goodness of the Lord in the new Jerusalem? With verse 7, we too must, must sound this amen about the return of Jesus. Our lives should be like a walking amen that He's coming back. <laughs> More than just a confession, Jesus' coming should compel us to invest in His kingdom over building our own. Invest in His kingdom over building our own. As we saw in Daniel 7, Jesus will come to replace all the rebel kingdoms with God's eternal kingdom. And therefore, when it comes to our values and our priorities and our investments and the use of our time and how we use our home and, and how we educate our children and how we budget our money and steward our stuff, what we do at work, how we relate to others in the world, we need to ask, how are these things strategically serving the one kingdom of Jesus that will last forever. Remember how I started? There are uh, lots of other comings in our lives that make a big difference in the way we do things. How much more should the rhythm of of our lives be shaped by the coming of Jesus, King of Kings? Jesus' words in Matthew 25 are are fitting here. I want to read them to you. He He says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there are only two responses to Jesus' coming, wisdom or wickedness. Wisdom, it says here, is faithfulness to Jesus throughout his time that he is away. Wickedness uses Jesus' delay to do what you want instead of what he's given you to do. So let's be sure that Jesus' coming sobers us in the right ways and makes us wise and faithful. How are you preparing to meet him? Morally speaking, are you conducting yourself in ways that, that would be commendable to Jesus when you meet Him face to face? Ethically, how are you spending your days at, at work? Colossians reminded us last week that in whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You were serving the Lord Christ. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. Those words should shape how 
how we work, regardless of who else may be coming to approve, our utmost concern is Jesus' approval. Will he find us faithful in all that we give our hands to? God has also, also gifted each one of you who are part of the church. He's gifted each one of you with various skills and, and, and giftings and knowledge. And I want to ask, how are you using those strategically to advance the cause of Jesus? To build up the body? To make his name known? Are you like the ones in Matthew 25 who use their talents to increase the master's investment? Or are you like the one who buried his talent in the ground and just waited around? Reflecting on that parable, D.A. Carson writes this. He says, it's not enough for Jesus' followers to hang in there and wait for the end. They must see themselves as servants who improve what their master entrusts to them. Failure to do so proves they cannot really be valued as disciples at all. That's a sobering word. Now, different people will have different levels of ability, different amount of resources different types of family situations and work. Some will have different emotional capacities. Some will have different handicaps or health conditions. The question is more about how you're using whatever you do have, whatever you have been given and entrusted with. And how are you using them for Christ's sake? Whether it's a lot or a little, how are you using it to serve Jesus? The things that you own, how are they strategically serving Christ's kingdom? To what use are you putting them to advance Jesus' cause? In what ways are you sharing them with others? When it comes to missions and evangelism, does does Jesus' coming put a, a new level of urgency on getting the message out? Husbands, are you ready to meet Jesus and give an account to Him on how well you have loved your wife, on how well you have shepherded and led your children and nurtured your home? For all of us... Let's give our lives to investing strategically in Jesus' kingdom. And then finally, receive Jesus' coming as your assurance of peace. Receive Jesus' coming as your assurance of peace. This salutation began in verse 4 with grace to you and peace. Okay, and we discussed how it comes from God the Trinity. But with verse 7, we're... We're now seeing how God will ensure that his peace comes on earth and comes to his people. One thing that Daniel 7 and Zechariah 12 both hold in common is that both come to the Lord's people in the face of enemy oppression. 
It's just that Daniel is in the smack dab in the middle of exile, and Zechariah is after the exile, but both of them are feeling this tension and these pressures from these oppressive nations surrounding them. And God gives them this word of hope about a kingdom and a king who's coming to establish his reign forever. Well, John, by picking up those two prophecies and and, and applying them here, he is also writing to a church who is in the middle of a tribulation. He is writing to a church who's going through the tribulation and experiencing persecution and suffering. Later it says, the kingdom of the beast is drunk with the blood of the saints. And that is happening right now. We are in the tribulation. Persecution awareness is often a blind spot in America. Nevertheless, a few people have gone to great lengths to research the persecution of Christians and make us more aware. Voice of the Martyrs, Open Doors, the Barnabas Fund over in the UK, of the Pew Research Center are just a few But in terms of a detailed book-length treatment of persecution, there's a book by John Allen called The Global War on Christians. This is one resource. He's the senior Vatican analyst for CNN. Don't freak out. (laughs) But he concludes this. Half of all martyrdoms in Christian history occurred in the 20th century. Fully half, or 45 million, went to their deaths in the 20th century. More Christians were killed because of their faith in the 20th century than all previous centuries combined. There's a book like this on the shelf in the library if you want to check it out. There's another one just like it right next to it by a couple more, three, three other authors. And they're finding the same things. And we're two decades into the 21st century, and it's not improving. So what will you hold on to when persecution comes for you? If you're living in in this, it is really easy to grow weary. It's hard to keep loving your enemies when they're doing awful things the people you love. It's heartbreaking to watch loved ones go missing overnight. What are the saints supposed to hold on to? The present reign and the future coming of Jesus. He will come with the clouds and deal with the enemies of God's people. He will deliver them from their oppressors and bring them into a kingdom of peace that will never end So for all of us who belong to Jesus, it says that he's going to shelter us with his presence, wipe away all of our tears, and our suffering will be over, and our obedience will prove that it was worth it. Or maybe you're not experiencing persecution, but part of this tribulation is also characterized by suffering, by the brokenness of this world, by the brokenness of your bodies. And there is a peace that you long for 
On the way to church this morning, Andrew Peterson's song was playing in the background. He said, he has this line, Tell me the story I still need to hear. Right? He talks about raising a glass to the past. But it's a song that anticipates the the future coming and the glory that we will have in the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to make it. We're going to make it because the Lord is gracious and we're going to make it because the kingdom of peace is coming with the coming of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, hold us fast until that day when Jesus comes with the clouds And until that day comes, I pray that we might be able to tell each other the story that we still need to hear. That we are coming again. I pray we might take this time at the Lord's table this morning to tell each other that story as we proclaim proclaim Jesus' death until he comes again. Hold us fast until that day. Help us to keep looking upon the pierced one, faith, and find nourishment as we see what he accomplished for us in his wounds. Amen.